Good morning, Kingsmead family, and anyone else who may be listening. Welcome to today's service, which is the first one for March. And wow, how fast is the year going? Can you believe it's March already? You know, <clears throat> there's some people who say time flies like an arrow, and to that I say yes, and fruit flies like bananas. <laughs> um, my sorry, my apologies. I can never resist a joke, but there's a reason for that. And that is because seeing smiles on people's faces and hearing a good genuine belly laugh, uh, Sean Bridge will know what I'm talking about, it inspires and motivates me. Happy people are, to me, proof of God's awesome power and his ability to bring light into a world that is suffering from so many things, I mean, wars and diseases amongst other things. Uh, earlier this week, I was sent a music video on WhatsApp, and although I've seen this particular video before, as I watched it again, it just really struck a chord with me. And so I thought that uh, it would be good if we could all listen to this music so, music video this morning um, as our first song. And the song is called Nobody, and it's by the Casting Crowds. I hope you all enjoy. Why you ever chose me Has always been a mystery All my life I've been told I belong At the end of the line With all the other not quite With all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus When Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul For the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down In history As another blood or Faithful member of the family And if they all forget my name Well, that's fine with me I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down in history down in history Has another blood bought Faithful member of the family That's all I ever wanna be And if they all forget my name Well, that's fine with me I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus to nobody, trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Nobody but Jesus. Shall we all bow our heads in prayer? Dear Lord,
Thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for your incredible word, which lifts us up, inspires us, convicts us, and indeed comforts us in our time of need. Lord, we pray that your word becomes ingrained in our heart, and that you guide us to use your word to encourage and motivate others. There are those who don't know you yet, those who long to draw closer to you, and we ask that your spirit fills them with a sense of love and of purpose. Lord, we ask that you guide us in our thoughts, our actions and our words, so that we may be the conduit through which we can affirm and inspire those around us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we want to thank you for your continued blessings that we have received each and every day in the last week or month or year, whether it's the rains received to the lessening of lockdown restrictions and all the things in between. We are truly grateful for each and every little thing. Lord, we ask that you bless our speaker Ian Ames today as he brings us your word. And we ask that you open our hearts and our minds so that it will be absorbed and used to encourage our walk and our relationship with you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you may have noticed um, that I keep using the words today, inspire and encourage. And there's a reason, because, well, that's my theme this week, uh, God's ability to inspire and motivate us. If you listen to the song we started off with, there was a couple of lines which uh, were repeated a couple of times, uh, I guess, and the words were, Moses had stage fright. Uh, David brought a rock to a sword fight. You picked 12 outsiders and changed their life. And then a little bit later it says, the moral of the story is, everybody has a purpose. And those are the words that really stuck in my head this week, because most of us desire change at some point or another. And it's sometimes because we want to move forward in our lives or our career, or sometimes we've hit a low point and we want to get out of it, but we don't know how. Maybe it's just because we want a closer relationship with God. And this is where God comes in. He knows that change can be difficult. And throughout the Bible, we read about the fact that God has the power to change. Not only our lives, but our hearts, our families, and our destiny. And as we work towards tackling these major life changes, God has qualities that will inspire and motivate us, help us to persevere in that change, help us to find our purpose. I mean, some of these qualities, God transforms. He has the power to transform anyone into a totally different person. I mean... Think of Paul in the Bible, what happened to him. Uh, you know, that's God's power of transformation. I mean, the other thing is God helps us. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. God-given ability to do the things we do, whether it's baking a cake or creating a virtual service or, you know, um, helping at Sunday school. All of these things are, are, are God-given abilities. God also fulfills his promises. Over and over again in the Bible, we see that God can be trusted because he always finishes what he starts. In our own lives, I'm sure we all have many instances of God fulfilling a promise. God is also faithful and he gives us strength. This is, can be seen in, in one verse. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1, verse 7 to 9, it says, There is no gift of the Holy Spirit that you don't have. You are full of hope as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to come again. 
God will keep you strong to the very end. Then you will be without blame on the day our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God is faithful. He has chosen you to share life with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So even when we're unfaithful, God is faithful. And despite our sins, he's still faithful. And he restores our strength when we repent of our sins. And then the last way which I can think of in which the God's qualities help us is God gives us the tools we need. I mean, we don't change people ourselves. God changes people. The Bible, his word, changes lives. God gives us the scriptures as tools we need to change our lives and to help others. He also uses us as conduits to reach those who need him, who need to be inspired. I mean, we all have God-given talents, as I was mentioning earlier, that can be used in some way or another. And I have a childhood friend. Uh, his name is Alan. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning him. And when we were teenagers, I think our biggest talents really were partying and giving our parents headaches and gray hairs. But now we're a bit more mature. And um, my friend has discovered a talent for producing music. So, And he combines that with a, a daily words of motivation and encouragement reaches out to whomever needs to hear it through his various social media pages. He doesn't do this for fame or for money. He does it simply to share his God-given ability to inspire others to be the best version of themselves. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it just shows our God truly is an awesome, inspirational God. Now our next hymn is a familiar one, and it was chosen by Tammy. Now, she had no clue what I was going to ramble on about today, but God works in his ways, and it seems quite apt. So let's listen to our next hymn, which is In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found.
hope you all enjoyed that. And I'm now going to hand over to Ian for his message. Take it away, Ian. Uh, there's an author, Jerry Bridges. Um, he spoke about Christianity and adversity. And in one of his writings, he says, he says, I realize and knew that just as we must learn to obey God one choice at a time, we must also learn to trust God one circumstance at a time. Trusting God is not a matter of my feelings, but of my will, he carries on writing. He says, I never feel like trusting God when adversity strikes, but I can choose to do so even when I don't feel like it. And I think most of us can echo those words. He went on to say that the act of the will, though, must be based on belief. Our belief must be based on the truth, the truth of God's word and the truth of our understanding of just who God is. And that truth is that part of God's plan for us is to trust him, to trust him no matter what we're going through, no matter what circumstances we face, no matter what trials come our way as hard as it can be at times. But before we go to God's Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we can turn to it at all times. Lord, whether we are full of joy or whether we are mourning, whether we are happy, whether we are sad, whether we are stressed, whether we are relaxed, Lord, at all times we can go to Your Word and we can read Your Word and understand part of Your will for us. But Lord, mostly we thank you for your word that it indeed glorifies you. And so Lord, I pray that as we go through your word today, we may see Jesus lifted up and God glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to make your way to Psalm 123, um, as you get there, you'll see that there's a heading of, at Psalm 123 calling it a song of ascent. Now, what is that? So I want to just dwell on that briefly before we go into the psalm itself, there are a total of 15 psalms of ascent in the Psalter, in the, the books of psalms. You don't have to look too far because they all come together from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. They're all known as psalms of ascent. Now, all of them, with the exception of one, Psalm 132, all of them have eight or less verses. So they're all very short um, psalms. Now, what is a psalm of ascent? Commentators have differed on their um, understanding of what it signifies, um, but most of them agree that it serves a cultic purpose, serves a worship purpose within the psalms. One school of thought is that they ascend in tone as you read them. Um, not being very musical, I don't really go for, for that view personally. But another suggests that they build upon each other. That's why they're called Psalms of Ascent, that they, like a story, lead into the next one as you go along. So, for example, the first few, if you look at Psalm 120, it shows us someone looking around at the world in despair. Then Psalm 121 shows how they look above their troubles to the hills. And then Psalm 122, they look for God in the temple. And then in Psalm 123, he's looking even higher to the heavens. Psalm 124, he has found God. So that's one way that there could be a series of ascent. And the, each grouping does a similar thing. Psalm 125 to 129 focus on confidence in God. Psalm 130 to 134 focus on communion with God. Now this view does have merit, but We've got to ask, well, why did they set up a series of psalms in this way? And the main view that I tend to agree with is when we look at how worship was conducted in the temple as people arrived for um, the different sacrifices, as people arrived for the different times of worship at the temple, we can go to Ezekiel chapter 40 and look at what the temple looks like. He's talking about the future temple of Israel. But the description also applies to Solomon's temple. And he mentions that there are seven steps leading up to the outer court. 
and then a further eight steps leading into the inner court, a total of 15. Now, whilst we don't know if that's the exact number of steps in Solomon's temple, because we're never really told, we can assume that Ezekiel's temple is based on Solomon's temple, and it's of the same sort of construction. What it's thought is that at the start of a festival, the priests would ascend to the first step and recite the first psalm of ascent, and then ascend to the second step and the second psalm, etc., etc., as they were getting ready for the festival, as they were getting ready for the opening of that festival. These psalms are constructed in such a way that the first line can be read by the high priest or chief priest, and that the other priests can then read or sing the remaining verses by way of a response. But whether you're reciting the psalm as part of a worship service or singing it to yourself as you travel, dealing with it as you go through your quiet time, it does have a lot to teach us if we are prepared to listen to God through it. So let's read the psalm. I'll be reading the NIV version, but follow along in, in what you've got in front of you. Psalm 123, a song of ascent. Verse 1. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Just four verses long, and may the Lord teach us from, from his word. I mentioned earlier that the previous Psalms, the writer had gradually raised his eyes from his enemies around him to the hills, to the temple, and then finally in this Psalm, to the heavens. It's like he looked around in panic, looked at the situation around him, and looked for an escape route, uh, looking for high ground, so to speak. But then he realized that his help actually can only come from the Lord. You can't escape your troubles no matter how high you climb up the nearest hill. So he realized that his help can only come from God. So he went to the temple. He went to the temple in search of God. And in his prayers, he remembered that God is actually much bigger than just brick and mortar, much bigger than the building that he was in. He realized God couldn't be confined or contained in a certain time or in a certain place. We all know God is infinite. God is everywhere all of the time. And that's why in verse 1 he said, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. He knows his God. He knows his God well. He knows that God doesn't dwell physically with mankind, that God's dwelling place is in that place that we call heaven. But he also knows that while God is in his dwelling place in heaven, he's also here. He's here with us because we see his handiwork all around us. And like the psalmist, we too can know our God and we can know him well. You know, we can realize that God is in heaven. We told that in the Bible, but we can also know that he did come to earth. He came to dwell amongst mankind. Jesus, God incarnate. But we also know that whilst Jesus has returned to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, His presence is still here. He hasn't left us. He's never left us nor forsaken us. In fact, He's here in the person and the work of God the Holy Spirit. So the question is, is do we know God? How well do we know God? Do we realize that God is always with us? That He's not remote. He's not somewhere far off. Do we realize that God did come to earth as Jesus Christ. Do we know that when he was crucified, the temple, the curtain in the temple, tore from top to bottom? And the book of Hebrews tells us that we now have confidence to enter into the holy place, enter into the very throne room of God because of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, who was the veil torn for us. That there's a new and living way which Jesus inaugurated for us. So if we really know and understand our God, then we will also know that whilst the psalmist looked upward in despair, 
he also knew that God was with him in his circumstances. He knew that God wasn't sitting somewhere remote, that God is not a disinterested God. So if he knew that God was not limited to the heavenly realm, well then what was his focus in looking up to God in the heavens? Did he look up in the desperate hope that he wouldn't then have to focus on the problems around? Because sometimes we feel like that. We don't want to look at the problems around us. We'd rather just shut our eyes or hide from what's going on around. But I don't think that was the, the psalmist's intent. Because while we might want to look away from the problem, while we might want to ignore the problems that we have around us, the psalmist wasn't doing that. Let's look at what he wrote next. He seems to just change tack, doesn't he? Verse 2, he says, As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Now, culturally, back then and even today in the Middle East, the, the Middle Eastern master would not speak as much to his servant as we would speak to our domestics, to those who serve us. Much of their instructions are carried out and were carried out by the wave of a hand or the twitch of a finger. And the servant would know what was required and they would go off and fetch whatever was needing to be fetched, for example. If we're trying to find a, a modern day equivalent that we can relate to more culturally, we could probably think of the training of a retriever type dog. A dog that needs to be trained to obey commands silently, where you don't want to voice out a command in order for it to go off and retrieve, you know, a gun dog if you're shooting ducks or whatever, basically. The dog is trained to basically keep their eyes on the master, to fixate on their owner and wait for the signals, the quiet hand signals that are given to that dog. And it's amazing when you watch them in action how fixated they are on the owner. They're staring, but it's an alert staring. It's not a zoned out sort of staring. They're waiting for that slightest signal so that they can go bounding off and carry out the master's wishes. But the servant in ancient times, going back to, to the psalm, was, was often a slave. And so if they missed a signal, if they didn't hear a signal, they could be punished. They could be punished and they had to be attentive to the master at all times. They weren't just looking at their masters in a more casual way. When we look at the, the tenses and the prepositions in this, basically, it gives us the impression that they were actually looking into the hands of their masters. When you read it, it's, it's, they're looking into the hands. They're not just casually glancing at the hands. They are so scared, they don't want to miss a single thing that the master signifies. And what about the slaves themselves? We've got two categories of slaves that are dealt with here. We've got the older male and the younger female slaves. The implications from the words used is that the male slaves appear to be the more experienced. They are the experienced ones, whilst the female slave, which is in the singular, she seems to be a younger girl, probably just learning her trade. The more experienced slaves would probably have been a slave for a while. Their experience has taught them what to expect, what to look for from the hands of their masters. Now we also, if you've been walking with God for a while, we're experienced in the hands of God. We're experienced in the evidences of God in our own lives. We've seen His hand at work in the past especially at times when he has provided solutions to problems that we are walking through or protected us during times of strife and trial. We've seen God's hand at work because of that experience we gain, we should be able to anticipate how he's going to work again in the future. Because we know how he's worked, we can look forward to his working again and we can look for his hand at work. But we have to look. We have to stay focused. We mustn't turn our eyes away from Him. We mustn't look to the troubles around us instead of looking to His hand in case we miss seeing His hand at work. 
because it's very easy to become distracted, isn't it? We become distracted with the things of the world. We become distracted with what's going on around us, that we actually miss God's hand at work. The second category of servant mentioned is the female slave, the female servant. The word that's translated as the female slave, it implies youth. We can expect that she is very young. Now we know that slaves came from the age of children, basically upwards in those days. We can assume that she's just learning how to follow the instructions of her mistress. We can imagine that she approaches this learning experience with a bit of excitement, possibly, maybe more expectation, keenness to do right, to please her mistress, and probably a lot of trepidation, a lot of worrying about, am I going to miss something? Am I going to do what's right? Now, I know that sometimes while I ought to have the settled experience of the servant who has known his master for a long time, I sometimes feel that I'm a learner, eager, expectant, yet not wanting to get my hopes up in a situation that I'm facing. My trepidation creeps in, and I start to doubt myself, and even worse, I start to doubt my God in the situation I'm facing. Now, we can learn from both categories of slaves that we've been introduced to by the psalmist, and I think that's why he mentions them. He shows us this contrast of the experienced servant because like the experienced servant we can rely on our experience with God in the past but also like the inexperienced servant we can be eager we can be excited to see what our master will do next how he will lead us and guide us and if we think about how the servant must feel when they lose sight of their master when they've turned their back to do something else or what about when it gets dark? What happens when we feel that we are lost in the dark, that we can't see our master's hand? Because sometimes we think that we can't see God in the midst of all this darkness around us. We're facing very dark times in this country. And oftentimes we wonder, can we see God's hand at work? Is God even here in this darkness, we might ask? Has he left us? Has he left us even momentarily? Maybe he's gone to attend to some important business. Corrie ten Boom was writing about a time of darkness when she was worrying about, was God there? And she said, well, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off the train. You sit still and you trust the engineer that he knows where he's going. It's our role to be expectant. It's our role to be attentive as a servant, as we wait for God's hand to show itself, as we wait for God to move in the situations we find ourselves on a daily basis. Our eyes should be fixed on God at all times, but especially in our times of trouble. Because if we remain expectant, if we remain focused, we will see His response. And as the psalmist says at the end of verse 2, he says, till he shows us his mercy. Notice that it's not if he shows us his mercy, it's until he shows us his mercy. God will have compassion. We don't know what form that will take. We don't know what time it will happen. We don't know how God will act in these various situations. We don't always know in advance how he wants to act or when he wants to act or how he wants us to act in those situations. Because there's no one response fits all for every situation that we face. And that's why we need to be fixated on our God, why we need to be focused on our Master, why we need to try and catch a glimpse of that imperceptible wave of his hand. And when we understand His will in our situation, we can joyfully attend to His command because we're carrying out our Master's wishes. Waiting is never easy. And like the servant before his Master, we may wait what may seem an eternity in a situation. But nonetheless, we need to wait, and we need to wait obediently. 
in these two first two verses, we see the, the trust that's displayed by the psalmist, or the example of focus and trust that he's giving us. And we know that we need to show that sort of example in our own trials. But we ask, surely the trials of the psalmist couldn't have been greater than ours. So what was troubling our psalmist? What were his trials that he was facing? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us at all. It's very generic. We're not sure exactly. But we do know that he displayed trust during those trials. So let's let him guide us through the rest of this, this psalm and look at the remaining verses. We read at the beginning of verse 3, we hear a cry from him, don't we? He says, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. And it sounds like an anguished cry, an anguished cry from the heart. And it is a real cry. It's a real cry that reflects that trials do hurt. They are very seldom do we go through a trial easily. More often than not, it does cause pain. E.M. Bounds, uh, an author specialized in prayer, he said, Trouble and prayer are very closely related. Trouble often drives men to God in prayer, whilst prayer is but the voice of men in trouble. Matthew 17, verse 15, we see those words, Lord, have mercy on me. We see those words repeated when the man asks Jesus to heal his son. Again, in Matthew 20, verse 30, the blind men appeal to Jesus for help in their affliction. Kuri eleison, Lord, have mercy. It's the cry of the psalmist, and it's echoed by us also. Also, in times of trial, we have that hope-filled cry. Because it's not a hopeless cry. We cry for mercy that we don't really deserve. We wait on the God of this creation expectantly. Yet we don't really deserve His attention, let alone His mercy. But it's still an expectant cry. It's a hopeful cry. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author tells us that because of the work of Christ, we can draw near to that throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in times of need. And only because we know Jesus, are we able to approach that throne of grace, the holy throne of God, and that we're able to cry out, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us. And only because of Jesus can we wait expectantly for that response. Our eyes fixed on our Master's hands, waiting to see what He will do, how He will guide us, how He will lead us in those times. And the psalmist turns from his cry of mercy cry for mercy, sorry, and he tells God what he's experiencing in the trials that he is facing at that time. The second part of verse 3 says, for we have endured no end of contempt. You see, the foe is real. The problem is real. It's not just made up. It's not a figment of his imagination. His feelings are real. They are physical. He can feel what he is going through. At that time, the language of the psalmist here makes us realize that his trials and his troubles have built up. It's as if they, he's got his cup is full of trouble already, and then it's compacted down and more is heaped on, basically. Each time it feels that there's no more room for any more trouble, and yet more is piled on and compacted down, and it makes you feel like you can burst at the seams. And... Yeah, we're facing that in Zimbabwe. We kind of don't seem to get rid of trials and trouble. They just seem to keep coming again and again. And we think, Lord, can we take any more? Lord, have mercy on us. And I can empathize with the psalmist. By way of illustration, we had an African flame tree in our garden. It was between our house and our neighbor's garage. It was a very old, majestic tree. It flowered beautifully. It was a wonderful old tree and it had withstood many seasons of whatever the seasons could throw at it. Whatever weather came its way, it had stood strong. In fact, you could probably say that because of what the externals had been thrown at it, it had sunk really deep roots so that it could stand firm amongst those external trials. And it was a healthy, vibrant tree from the outside. One day, it's just in two. 
We heard a massive crash and half the tree fell between our house and our neighbor's garage. Boy, God was in charge of that one, basically. Straight on the only bit of vacant lawn. But over the years, it had developed heart rot. The water had pooled in the lowest fork and sunk in and slowly had rotted away the whole center core of the tree. When it came down, it had a massive circumference. Two of me probably couldn't have reached around it. But the shell was just the bark and a bit more. It was maybe 5, 10 centimeters thick as a rim of the tree. The center was completely hollow, completely eaten away, rotted away. Basically, if the water had stayed outside, the tree could have endured many more seasons. It was strong. It was healthy. But because it let the water in, it was eroded from within, and it just couldn't withstand those last final trials. Verse 3 of our psalm ended with the psalmist considering that mounting contempt he was getting from the various circumstances that he was facing. And I think he probably would have coped if he didn't allow those circumstances to penetrate, the rot to come in. Verse 4, he says, We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Unfortunately, sometimes we allow those trials to get right in to our very souls. They come right in and they begin to challenge our faith. They try and rot us from the inside, if you will. Sometimes we feel that our relationship with God is under attack. And we begin to question that relationship. And sometimes we even begin to question God himself. And it's especially at those times that we need to fix our eyes on God. We fix our eyes on God in prayer, in petition, in reading His Word. And we don't allow those external events to sink inside, to affect the inside, to become our reason for turning away from God, for blaming God in the circumstance. And I think that besides prayer, one of the best ways to move forward through our trials is to look backwards sounds strange, but if we look backwards, we can see what God has done for us in the past, how God has rescued us from various trials and tribulations we've gone through, how God has carried us through those times, and then we can draw breath, square our shoulders, and face the next set of trials that come our way. E.M. Bounds, I quoted from him earlier, he also said this about prayer, he said the goal of prayer is the ear of God, a goal that can only be reached by patient, continued and continuous waiting upon Him, pouring out our heart to God and permitting God to speak to us. Only by so doing can we expect to know Him. As we come to know Him better, we shall spend more time in His presence and find that presence a constant and ever-increasing delight. I started at the beginning by quoting Jerry Bridges, where he said, As we must learn to obey God one choice at a time, we must also learn to trust God one circumstance or one trial at a time. Friends, let's fix our eyes on our Master, on our Master's hands, as we face the challenges that lie ahead of us in this nation. As we wait patiently for Him, We don't have to act like the Stoics and meekly accept the adversity. We can take it to God in prayer. And indeed, we can cry out to God to have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us in the situations that we find ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you for the reminder that we can cry to you. Lord, we don't have to stoically bear our burdens by ourselves. You didn't ask us to do that. You asked us to bring our burdens to you. And so, Lord, as we face the trials, tribulations, troubles that we face on a daily basis, Lord, may we always be focused on you, on your hands, through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Ian, for that. As we head towards the close today, I wanted to end with an uplifting song. and. 
I chose one that normally our very own Ange gives an amazing rendition of, but uh, seeing as she, we're making sure she's resting her voice for when we reopen the church in a couple of weeks' time, um, I chose a, a version by uh, an ensemble called Playing for Change. It features artists from war-torn countries and disaster zones all around the world. And um, there's even an appearance by a couple of singers from the DRC. I wonder if you'll be able to spot them when you listen to the song. Hope you all enjoy Down by the Riverside. I'm going to lay down my burden Down by the riverside Down by that river Down by that riverside Gonna lay down my burden down by that riverside, study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Study war no more. Study war no more. No more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Study war no more, study war no more. Lay down my sword and shield, down by the riverside. Down, down by the riverside, down, down by the riverside. I'm lay down my sword and shield, down by the riverside. Study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Study war no more. Thanks everyone for listening today. Um, I hope you all enjoyed that. We will have a virtual service again next week, the 14th of March, 
and then hopefully after that we will be returning to Kingsmead. So looking forward to that, but we'll speak to you again next week. Have a blessed week, everyone.